0: following program is intended for immature audiences only don't think just listen from coast to coast border to border and around the world you're going online with
1: Yours truly, William Eric Alexander on my friends. Call me Bill and you're online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV Channel 77. Well, tonight we're going to be talking to a gentleman who wrote a book about a subject that we all know about, at least in some way, shape or form. And in my hand right now, and and those of you can see it at home, I have, let me move it to this side. I have a glass bottle in my hand. And it is from around probably 1941, 1942. And it is a serving bottle that you would get at a, at a soda shop or at a pharmacy to make Coca-Cola. It was a gallon bottle of syrup. And the directions say, when serving a six-ounce drink, use one full ounce of syrup in a thin glass. Preferably a standard Coca-Cola glass. And finely chipped ice Fill the glass with with ice-cold carbonated water, stir with spoon, and enjoy. So that's what got me interested about the book we're going to be talking about tonight. It's called The Coca-Cola Trail. And it's by Larry Jorgensen, and we have Larry on the phone right now. Larry, how are you doing this evening?
0: I'm doing good, Bill. I'm sitting here, in fact, with a cold Coca-Cola... As we speak, so we're ready to talk about, as I would say, the subject in hand.
1: That sounds great. So where are you calling from tonight?
0: I am in Louisiana, uh, kind of the central part, more south than central. In fact, uh, we're located on a pretty little bayou uh, town near a town called Marksville. If you look on your map, that's kind of south of Alexandria, which is the center of the state. Okay. So we're down here in the start country.
1: So what got you interested in Coca-Cola, let alone writing a book about Coca-Cola?
0: Well it's always been a fascinating brand because it is so well known. And I thought I have near me two when I say near me, within you know a couple hours driving distance, two Coca-Cola museums one in Vicksburg, and one in Monroe, Louisiana, which they're about an hour, hour and 15 minutes apart. So I was going to do a, basically a freelance travel story. I thought this is something that people looking for a nice travel adventure, that go to Vicksburg, they can go to Monroe, and they have two interesting Coca-Cola museums they can look at, and they're both related to the one subject of the Biedenharn family that were they were the first the very first to bottle coca-cola it didn't it wasn't bottled first in atlanta it was bottled in vicksburg mississippi i did not realize that now when the
1: whole concept of this this uh, concoction came along where was it
0: created at well the formula for the syrup was created and the syrup was created in atlanta and it was created by a gentleman who had an injury from the civil war and he was trying to get some pain relief and the formula he created worked well plus it tasted good and when mixed with the carbonated water and so they started selling it logically in in pharmacies and drugstores that's where you would go for Plain relief. And, and so that's how it started. But it started as a syrup that ultimately was made into this wonderful beverage. And, in fact, that uh, is what happened in Vicksburg. The gentleman who first bottled it owned a drug store and a candy store. Okay. His name was Joe Biedentarn. And he was serving it across the soda fountain. Um. He he found that there were people out in the country that couldn't get the drink and couldn't get the town, and he thought, you know, if I could bottle this, I could get my Coca Cola drink to them. And so he started. He bought a little hand bottling machine, in fact, secondhand hand bottling machine, and started bottling Coca Cola. Uh, Didn't bother to ask Coca Cola, you know, the company that made the syrup, if it was okay. He just started doing it. So in his original version that was bottled, was it
1: carbonated or was it just uh, watered down?
0: No, it was carbonated. Okay. He had a he had a, a soda fountain, and you know, the, and they were serving other carbonated beverages, I suppose, lime and sarsaparilla and all this kind of stuff. But it was the Coca. See, he, besides having that that little soda fountain, he also was a distributor to other soda fountains Oh okay of the syrup. So he had easy access to it. And ironically, when he started bottling it, he did send two cases to Atlanta to the gentleman who at that time owned the syrup business. And uh, they said, yeah, this is okay. But they didn't pay much attention to it, uh, to the idea of bottling it for five years. Because And, that, that-, and that becomes... Be- go ahead.
1: because in their mind they thought it was something you'd have to go to the uh, to a pharmacy or soda shop to get, and it wasn't going well, to be something you could keep or or how did they why were they reluctant to the idea well
0: that that's a whole another interesting story which is a chapter uh in my book uh the chapter is Chattanooga and we have to go way back now <clears throat> to about five years. Joe first bottled it in 1894. Okay. About five years later, uh, there were two young attorneys from Chattanooga. The one had been in the uh, Spanish-American War in Cuba and uh, had sampled a carbonated beverage there. And when he came back to Chattanooga, he thought, boy, that Coca-Cola thing, we could put that in a bottle. That would be a good idea. So he traipsed off to Atlanta and tried to get permission to bottle it. In fact, he wanted the license to bottle it. It took two trips to Atlanta, and Asa Candler, who at that time owned and manufactured the syrup, finally gave in. He told them, he said, you know, I don't like this idea. I, I, I'm concerned about the, losing the quality of the beverage. And um, he said, I I, I just I'm not real happy about this. But he said he finally gave in to them and sold them the rights to bottle everywhere in the United States, except Mississippi, because Joe was still doing it. It, He sold he sold the rights bill for a dollar. And he never collected the dollar. And he never collected the dollar. He said, this is a dumb idea, bottling Coca-Cola, and he said, if this doesn't work, I don't want you guys to come crying back to me about it. So that's how it started. So you can imagine two young businessmen with not a lot of money but an idea, they go back to Chattanooga, and they're like, now what do we do? How do we bottle? Coca Cola. You know, it's kind of like the dog catching the car. Chasing the car, what do you do when you. Right. You know. Uh, So they they had the rights to bottle Coca Cola throughout the United States. And they thought, how in the world are we going to get that done? They started a little bottling business in Chattanooga. Between the two of them, they came up with $1,500. And they realized that's not going to work. Along came the idea of franchising. Oh, they okay. had the right. So they started selling territory. They would sell, they would go to, you know, the guy in Paducah. And they'd say, okay, we're going to sell you a 50-mile radius of Paducah. Now, the only thing is, you have to buy the Coca-Cola syrup. We've got to maintain the quality. Right. You have to use that syrup in your bottling." Well, there was more to that than just the quality, because they got a commission on every gallon of syrup that was sold. So they they sell the territory to somebody for, you know, $1,500, $2,000, and they continue to profit off of it by the commission on the syrup. Not a bad deal. No, not at all. And both of them... Both of them became very, very wealthy because of that.
1: So were they still getting the syrup out of Atlanta from the original uh, creator, or were they making right. their own syrup?
0: No, no. The syrup was coming from Atlanta, Okay. and they were simply getting a commission on the syrup that was being shipped from Atlanta to these various bottlers that they were setting up around the country. And, and that really is the key. And I say it in my book. It's the key to success to the creation of the Coca-Cola empire, because all of a sudden you've got over a thousand businessmen who are risking money and time right. to make your product profitable. That's why Coca-Cola grew. That that was, it's those bottlers, it's yeah. those young businessmen who said, yeah, we're going to do this. Uh, you know, we go back to old old Joe when he started in, in Vicksburg. You know, when he sent those two cases to uh, to Atlanta, you know, his biggest concern was they never sent back his bottles. <laughs> 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 um. and, and, and he continued to bottle, you know, for several years before he actually became a, quote, licensed bottler. Uh, under the authority of Coca-Cola. He was doing his own thing and doing it rather well. He had uh, six, five brothers. There were six of them all together. He had five brothers. Uh-huh. And ultimately, they all got in to Coca-Cola bottling, and they became, as a family, one of the largest Coca-Cola bottlers in the country uh, before they ultimately sold to Coca-Cola corporate so it, uh, it it just took off for them. It, it was a very successful thing. And you found that happened a lot, Bill. Um, Coca-Cola families, you know, um, so one, of them, one of them would get into it and he'd say, this is great. Right. And he'd get his his brother or his uncle or somebody else mm-hmm. involved. And there were a lot of Coca-Cola families across the United States. And there still are to this day. Well, I know
1: um, where I'm sitting at, I'm sitting south of Pittsburgh. Not too far from here, there was a bottler that bottled Coke by the the name of Cameron. And it was the Cameron family that had the bottling plant in Washington, PA, that covered this region. And I didn't realize that they sold franchises to the bottlers so they could actually to uh actually produce it now the other question is is the famous hourglass bottle who designed that and did everybody have to sell
0: that same bottle that is another wonderful story and it's a chapter in my book called root r-o-o-t and the bottle and the bottler about 19 um yeah 1916 fifteen in that right of that but nineteen fifteen they finally realized they had a problem. There were too many people bottling cola type beverages and they were using all types of bottles and they were they were spinning off so you'd think it was Coca Cola. Right. But it wasn't. And finally Coca Cola Corporate said, wait a minute, we need a bottle that when you pick it up and it's in your hands, you know that's a bottle of Coca Cola. So they went to the glass manufacturers, and they 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 said, that we have a contest, a challenge, create that bottle. And the one that creates the bottle, that will be the bottle for Coca-Cola here on out. Well, it so happened that that bottle, they, they, they had a year to do it. They went to a convention of bottlers, and the bottle that was approved, which is the one that we know today, was developed by the Root R.O.T. Glass Company in Terre Haute, Indiana. I'll be darned. Um, they, they went on and for years were the only ones making it, and then Coca-Cola realized they needed more glass companies making the bottles, so the Root Company then authorized other glass manufacturers to make the bottle. In fact, there was a big one in Chattanooga, and for a long time, the root glass company got a commission on bottles that were made by other bottle companies. And that, that continued uh, for many years until Coca-Cola finally bought the rights to the bottle, and now they own the rights to it. But it was all because of the challenge. It was because of the need to standardize that particular product in a bottle that would be universally recognized. And there along came the Coca-Cola bottle as we know it. There's one little one little uh, piece of history with that. Why is the bottle green? You know, the original bottle had that green tint to it. I don't know. And Good the, question. The reason, well, the reason I'll give you the quick answer. <laughs> the reason it the Root uh, Glass Company in Terre Haute, Indiana, had a sand quarry about fifty miles away. In fact, the town where they had it was Greencastle, but that green has nothing to do with it. Okay. And they were they were getting the sand from that quarry, hauling it to Terre Haute and making the glass. Well, it so happens the minerals in that sand created that green. Coca-Cola liked it so well that they said, "That's yes, we definitely want that. At first they called it German green, and they thought, Twice about that, and then they called it Georgia Green. Okay, but when other bottlers started making the bottle, Coca-Cola said, "If you don't have those minerals in your sand, add them because we want the green," and that's that's why the bottle was initially green. So this was the early days when, when I mean,
1: there really wasn't any quality control, but Coca-Cola was making sure that everything was as close as possible from different distributors and different bottlers. So they actually right, had, that, had their hand in the local franchises.
0: Well, they certainly did because, first of all, you had to use their syrup. Right. And second of all, you had to bottle in the bottle they specified. So absolutely, you had to. Those were two things, and they were important to the bottler, too, because the bottlers were telling Coca-Cola, hey, we got a guy in the town next to us who's who's knocking us off. You know, he's producing a product, he's calling it something cola, and people think it's us. And so the bottlers were equally as happy to participate in the uniformity of the product.
1: Now... When the original recipe from the stories I've heard supposedly had cocaine in the original recipe, is that correct? Oh, you don't know how
0: many times I've been asked that question. <laughs> well, no, I... what <laughs> what it had the original recipe had the cocoa leaf and the cola nut? Okay. So yeah, if you take the cocoa leaf and you know and do like the boys in Columbia are doing. Yeah, you'll get cocaine. Okay. But that it didn't have cocaine. It had the it had the, it had the leaf. And that and that of course people said, Oh, it's got cocaine. No, it's got the coca leaf. So what was the original formula.
1: So what was the medicinal purposes of it then?
0: Um, well it relieved it relieved pain for one thing. The the um, Pemberton who created it okay. had this war injury and he was looking for something uh to relieve the pain. And I don't know where he decided that that mixture would work. Somewhere he must have read something, but uh, it worked. And uh, it was created, for, as they say, for medicinal purposes. purposes. For <laughs> and and when, when the
1: drink was originally sold at pharmacies, was it given to kids or was it just an
0: adult beverage? It was given, it was, it was sold to anybody who wanted okay. it when, when, uh, when Joe sold it in, in Vicksburg across the counter, you could get a, uh, a small glass or a big glass for the same price. <laughs> and oh wow. It. And, and uh, it was anybody who liked it was certainly, it was not a you know an al- alcoholic or a narcotic beverage that needed control, which it was just a good good tasting
1: drink and still is. So whenever they were bottling this, and, and you mentioned originally coming out of the pharmacy, and they were mixing it there, and he was, he was mixing it and bottling it himself. When did, I mean, right. they had to come up with a ratio for the consistency of the syrup to the carbonated, to the carbonated water. How long did it tell, take them to actually get that? Because if they were going to bottle it on a grand scale, that would have taken a while to make that uniformity again.
0: Well, I think it was simply the formula that had originated in Atlanta at that first little drugstore. Um, I guess when Pemberton went in there with his syrup, he said, "Let's, you know, like anything else, let's try it and see what okay. comes out with the best flavor." And and that worked, and and everybody followed that same formula. So much per glass of soda water, right? And you have a Coca Cola, you know, and and that when Joe started bottling. He just took that same philosophy to the bottles, you know six and a half ounce bottle that's about the size of a of a of a standard soda fountain drink, and so the same formula worked so
1: whenever coca-cola was having a problem with people knocking them off. Is that when they started the advertising and starting the red label and and starting to do that so people knew that this was the official beverage or this is the authentic beverage
0: of Coca-Cola? Well, I think the bottle did that. But as far as the advertising, I mean, they started, when it was in that first drugstore, there was a banner that was hung over that drugstore. Coca-Cola, available here, you know. uh, When the boys started that first little bottling business in Chattanooga, they ran a little ad in the Chattanooga newspaper, and it said, Coca-Cola, try it, available at your local stand was the term they used, or or whatever. And a small ad, I've got a copy of it, that ran almost immediately after they started bottling. Um, But the ironic thing, Coca-Cola... Went to outdoor advertising quickly, and I mean everywhere you looked, and it is to this day, the Coca-Cola logo. It is the most collected logo in the in the country in the world. You know, you go into I don't care a flea market, an antique store, a memorabilia shop, you're going to find Coca-Cola. And at one time, Asa Candler, who owned the the syrup. Manufacturing told a Hollywood executive, "I it will, it will come a day when you can't make a movie outside without there being <laughs> a Coca-Cola sign in the background." And by golly, that's almost come to be. <laughs> so, um, they were, and it continues today. They're advertising their involvement in communities, right? Um, they have they always been a leader in that, and that's what made that. That's what them a jump ahead everybody else they they spent the time and effort to tell people about their product
1: where i'm located at i'm in a small town like i said south of the city of pittsburgh it's known as brownsville pa and they have been doing some renovation in town and there's one building that they were they redid and you can actually see the coca-cola the the advertising it's there it's faint that was on the brick wall that has withstood what? for almost 100 years now and you can see it the whole thing and you can make what? it out and again you can see that around the country on in old communities in that where they were painting absolutely painting those signs up there and they were there to stay because in their minds Coca-Cola was going to be there forever and by George they are here forever
0: well the purpo- one of the purposes of the book it's it's sort of a travel guide, and history. It tells people where you can go today to see things, to have access, public access, to things that were Coca-Cola. Maybe it's an old plant that's now a museum, or maybe it's a plant that's become a little boutique mall or whatever. And the, the book's purpose is to tell you where that's at, and when you get there, to tell you what you're looking at. Yeah. How did that start? What what was it first? You know, um, it's it's amazing, and the, that that logo, that Coca Cola logo, is such a standard in all the buildings. Uh, I've got two chapters in the book where I talk about the different signs. There is in in uh, in Georgia, Cartersville, Georgia. There is supposedly, and it's been classified as such, the oldest outdoor Coca-Cola sign in existence. Now, it's been retouched, okay. but it is the first one. And the interesting thing, it's, not a drug store there. it's on a drugstore there. It's called Young's Pharmacy. The Coca-Cola uh, syrup salesman was visiting the store, and he asked the store owner, he said, can I paint a sign on the side of your building? And he said, yeah, go ahead. So he painted this big sign on the building, and it said, drink Coca-Cola. Well, the only problem they found when they went to restore it, and they looked closely at it, it was DR, and then the I was squeezed in there, NK. And when the Serb salesman painted the sign, he forgot the I in drink, and he had to go back and add it. (laughs) So when they restored the sign, they had to do the same thing. And it's a classic. The sign is, is there, and we there are a lot of those around the country. We've highlighted some of them in the book, and you know, everywhere you look, there's a Coca-Cola well, sign. On, many of them have stories.
1: Now, on page 74 of the book, and about that sign you're saying, it says, The first painted wall sign to advertise Coca-Cola was placed on this wall. For the Coca-Cola Company in 1894, the sign was restored in 1989. And you can see it. It's on the Young's Brother Pharmacy, and um, it's right uh, right outside of it. And it it is amazing to me that these signs are all over the place, and they're still around. But the other thing that fascinates me is now all the memorabilia that you can buy. Like you said, you can go to an antique store, and there's all this stuff that has the Coca-Cola insignia on it that people are 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 looking for one of the things that i think is one of the most treasured right now and I, i'm a i go to car shows i collect uh, classic beetles and the big thing at the car shows are the old red coolers the big metal coolers that have coca-cola name on the side of it and those things are going between five and six hundred dollars a pop to get one in decent shape because people right. want right. to buy that nostalgia, and it just amazes me how these things have held value, and not only value but also a place in the in the public's heart all these years. Good
0: good memories, you know. Yeah. Um, the vending machines. There are vending machines that are going for ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Restored vending machines because they are unique, and again, it's the it's Coca Cola um there's so many different things there is a very large organization of collectors memorabilia collectors Mm -hmm. and they have chapters all over the country they have a national convention the various chapters have their own conventions and they swap and trade and you know tell coca-cola stories but uh, where else can you find a product with that kind of following? People will go out and collect your brand, you know.
1: It's amazing. And that is amazing to me because I was born in the mid-60s and just remember in the early 70s being able to go into a place to a vending machine, putting your money in, opening the door, and pulling out a glass bottle. I mean, you tell a kid to do that today, they look at you and said, what do you mean you have to actually pull it out that's supposed to drop in front of you? <laughs> Right, going. That was (laughs) fun. I mean, we enjoyed it. We used to play with the bottle cap thing on the
0: side too, but uh, well, or or how about looking at the bottom to see whose bottle came from the furthest distance?
1: That's right, and you uh,
0: know,
1: and collecting the bottles at the end of the week and making sure that we went back to the grocery store so you got your deposit. Coca
0: Cola bottle collectors right now are are. Very unique, and, and they can tell you a bottle and what it's worth, and a bottle that you might just toss in the garbage yeah. or find alongside the road, if it's come from the certain bottler, it's valuable. You know, In fact, I'll tell you a story, This and it's not in the book, but it will be in the next one. Um, when they had the competition to create the bottle, There was one company, it was the Graham Glass Company, that created a bottle. I've been told, I haven't seen it, that it was a three-sided bottle. And it didn't, obviously, become the bottle. Right After the competition, there were seven of them made. After the competition, they were to be destroyed. Well, one escaped. (laughs) How it escaped, I don't know. But there's a gentleman in Indiana that has it. And he's been offered $400,000 for it. And he won't sell it. I don't blame him. So, you know, the collectors, the right bottle to the right guy is worth a lot of money. And it's probably bottles that you and I have tossed in the trash along the way, not knowing.
1: Well, and that's a shame, too, because we've become such a throwaway society that it was, like you said, cool, whenever you got the bottle of Coke, to look at the bottom to see what bottling company it came from originally, especially up here, because those bottles traveled across the country. Yep. I mean, and, and Absolutely. because of the way the deposit idea was. I mean, and honestly, if you think about it, that was the first real recycling that we had in the United States, was the whole idea of a glass bottle.
0: Well, and then when we got into our throwaway. Yeah. situation. Two, two things happened. It led to canning. And that created a whole other problem for Coca-Cola bottlers. Now they had to can. In fact, Coca-Cola told their bottlers this was back I think in the 1980s that I'm not... I don't have the book in front of me. Okay. Too, but about that time, they told their bottlers cans are coming and if you can't... If you can't can at your plant, you better get together and figure out as a co-op or what you're going to do to start canning because the cans are throwaways and people want throwaways. Well, the glass business at that time created the throwaway bottle. Now, what's the difference? The difference is in the structure of the bottle. Right. The old original deposit bottles were stronger. They could mm-hmm. withstand many washes and many uses. So for the bottle business to be competitive, they had to create, quote, a cheap bottle, something that could be thrown away. And uh, that whole thing of throwaway society impacted bottling and canning at the same time. To me, and I've always said this, and
1: again, it may be an age thing for me too, I think Coca-Cola tastes better in a glass bottle than it does in a can.
0: And you're not alone on that. Um you don't know the people that i run into and i'll say what's your coca-cola memory and they'll say boy that cold coke in a six and a half ounce bottle that was the best and there are people today that they won't drink it unless it's in a bottle which
1: is i think there's something to that which is interesting to me because i can i still see the glass bottle for sale but they're not bottled in the united states
0: they're bottled in mexico yeah, there are some bottles in Mexico, but there are still bottlers here in the United okay. States, too. But, you know, a lot of them are also bottling uh, in vinyl and plastic. Yes. You know, uh, I visited with a, a bottler in Tennessee uh, not too long ago, and when I was there, he was bottling the uh, two liters, and he was also bottling, catch this, Dasani water. Okay. You know, that's... Your Dasani, uh, it, it is a purified water. They have a system to do it. It's not tap water. Right. And certain bottlers could do it, and this one was doing it. Um, you know, so that that, that whole thing is, has changed a lot, too. Um, but there are, there are bottlers. The thing that's happened in the business is as transportation got better and highways got better mm-hmm. the little small town bottlers yeah went out of, didn't go out of business they were consolidated right into you take for for example here in the south in the south southwest there's a uh, the third largest bottler in the United States is United Coca-Cola United out of Birmingham they have seven states they serve those seven states with nine bottling operations and fifty-some dis- distribution centers, a lot of your old Coca-Cola plants became simply warehouses and distribution centers. Others were just closed down and sold. Sold, yeah. You know, so and it was the economy, the efficiency of transportation versus a bottling line and lots of employees and and all that has.
1: I think it's interesting whenever they jumped into the the whole idea of the plastic bottle that when they did do the plastic bottle, especially in the 80s when we decided that we had to go into a metric system and we had to start selling things in liters. And that's when they went into the plastic bottle when they did a two liter when they did a two liter bottle. Um, And yet that's the only thing in our culture in a consumer culture that we actually use in the metric system is is the beverages right. that we buy. And I always thought it was interesting that Coca-Cola and Pepsi were the first two that actually did that to to get us into that movement. And unfortunately, it never caught on. Now, the other thing I want to know, which I thought was really interesting, and I don't know if you touch it in the book or not, cause, um, is when Coca-Cola decided to change the formula in the 80s, Of why they ever did that?
0: <laughs> I'll tell you why they did that. You remember in the 80s Pepsi had the Pepsi Challenge. Yes. And and you they would go to places and they would set up two glasses. Sample this one and then sample that one. And which one do you like best? And people would say oh that's this one and it was Pepsi. Well it the it was simple. Pepsi is sweeter. It's sweeter, yes. And when you ta- and when you drink something your first sip is going to be the sweetness. Pepsi was sweeter, and people said, oh, yes, but guess what? They didn't drink the whole glass. No. Okay, so Coca-Cola got misled. They were believing that people thought Pepsi was better. It was that first taste that was better. But bottom line, a glass of Pepsi compared to a glass of Coca-Cola, there's no difference. And so they started the new Coca-Cola based on that challenge that they were losing. And they made a sweeter Coca Cola and people rebelled. What I (laughs) mean there were there were there were Coca Cola salesmen, delivery men in the grocery stores (laughs) that were accosted by little old ladies with umbrellas that said, I want my Coca Cola back, you know. It it was the biggest marketing mistake in the world and it was truly a mistake. It was not a gimmick it was a coca-cola mistake what don't of the, do
1: that what of, one of the things and I, I i remember it to this day because my grandmother would buy coke that's what she she did she bought it in the bottles and she always had this surplus of coke well all of a sudden regular coke was gone you had new coke and she would not buy the new coke because she had this surplus of the original Coke and we would go to her house and drink it because the new Coke tasted awful. Again, it was too (laughs) sweet. And I always said that Coca-Cola is that that drink that you drink when you eat food. It is like pairing a fine wine with a dinner because it has a drier taste to it and it lets you enjoy the food just a little bit more. I've always said that, but I remember the new Coke fiasco. And then when Coca-Cola came back out again with classic Coke, which I'm thinking, why don't you just call it Coke? Why do you have to keep calling it something new? But uh, yeah that that was a that was a marketing nightmare. It really was, and
0: how they how Pepsi was, pulled that
1: one over top of them is beyond me.
0: Well, it was uh, it was something that uh, Coke wishes they hadn't done, but you know, and they had people that. Oh no! This is the way. This is we got to go this way, and, and it was internal strife. You know, do we right. do we continue on with this albatross or not? You know, and they finally they finally listened. Hey, another example of listening to the consumer. You know, you use the term, and I've used it too while we're talking Coke, right? Right. Well, Coca Cola at first rebelled when people would call their drink Coke. They thought this is, well, no, it's not Coke, it's Coca Cola. Right. But you know what? The public, they wanted to go into the store and say, give me a Coke. Right. You know, they like that. Well, if you look at some old Coca Cola advertising, you go way back, You they, they created a figure, a little elf like figure called the Sprite Boy. Yes. And sometimes you'd see him with a, a soda cap. And sometimes you'd see him with a bobble cap on, depending on what he was selling Uh in that Uh ad. The Sprite Boy, and it had nothing to do with the drink Sprite, the Sprite Boy was created because Coke finally gave up and said, all right, we're going to (laughs) create this caricature to promote Coke. And the Sprite Boy was created to promote Coke. By the way, the Sprite Boy was created... By the same artist who created the coca cola santas, I don't know if you noticed on your Christmas stamps this year, yes, but there were four- there were four santas mm-hmm. four different santas, each one of them was a coca cola created santa we've We have accepted Santa as coca cola created him right because the- it was that he yeah, was, was the, that artist that created the Sprite Boy. Yeah,
1: know? he was Coca Cola Santa became the Santa that everybody recognizes because he was exactly. big, he was jolly, he had the white beard, and he always had a Coke in his hand. Whenever he's <laughs> looking at the list, he has a Coke in his hand. That was one of the they best the one of the best marketing um, campaigns that I think anybody could have done because again, it tied Coke into the holidays it tied it into Americana, it tied everything together. And then Coke became very successful when they brought the polar bears into play. And the, the yep. and and being able to do that cuz I think Coca-Cola's advertising is just a part of America's lexicon as the drink is itself because they 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 weren't marketing a taste. They were marketing an image. And that image they marketed They've been doing for so long, and for doing for so well. Other than the new Coke fiasco, but we'll give we'll give them a pass on that one.
0: <laughs> well, it's true. In fact, I'm not a I'm not a collector of memorabilia, but I did buy last week a pin type because it was so old that Coca-Cola had created it for advertising purposes. It was probably about eleven by. Uh, Nine or so, and it was just a a tin uh, print on it. All the only thing you saw on it was the name Coca-Cola, and then there was this beautiful picture of a solo jerk serving a Coca-Cola to a young girl, long curly blonde hair, yeah. and her mother sta- her mother standing in the background with this look of satisfaction i have pleased my child that sign didn't need words no it that didn't sign needed no words the emotions were there you looked at that and you said Well, oh, if i want to make my kid happy i'm gonna go buy her a coke right you know and that that's what they did and that stuff is all over the place
1: yeah one you of know, the that's what they collect one of the one of the slogans i remember because uh was things go better with coca-cola things go better with coke right and then yep. you've had the uh well, I like to teach the world to sing which again was a massive marketing campaign in the in the 60s that they just redid over the last what 10 or 15 years because again yep. if i want world peace what do i have to do i give someone a coca-cola
0: there was in my book, and in one of the chapters where I write about signs, yeah, there was a sign uncovered uh, in Opelika, Alabama, where the sign is now the oldest unrestored sign. And they had a, as they began to uncover this sign and realize what it was, they had a big unveiling, and the the gentleman who owned the store where the sign was found um invited people in and gave he would give everybody who came to see the sign on that day a nickel and they could take that nickel and buy a coke well the mayor was there and he said i'd like to give the world a coke <laughs> and i wonder where he heard that i you want you're right i wonder <laughs> So it's yeah, the, the, their slogans have, have many of us find us looking back at those slogans and saying, "I have good memories of that slogan from whatever period in my life." And again, that's Coca-Cola is genius in marketing, no doubt about it.
1: And because I'm looking through the book right now as you're talking and looking at some of the signs, and again, they were they were unique. They were outdoor advertising. And a lot of them um, were actually painted on the building themselves. There were a few billboards that you have shown here, but I guess the ones that have stayed longer are the ones that have been on sides of the buildings that either have been restored or have not been restored because, um, right. because I mean, when you paint brick, it's very hard to get it off. <laughs> it's
0: there. <laughs> and And they have been found, people will tear a wall down and, Lo well, and behold! Look at what we've got. Here's a Coca-Cola <laughs> sign. I didn't know it was there. You know, uh, it, 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 it's just it, it's fascinating what they've done with that, and and it continues today. They, they put them up. There is in my, in my second book. There will be a chapter. Coca-Cola collectors probably know the name Jim Harrison. Okay. Jim Harrison painted many of the Coca-Cola calendars. And he started out as a young boy in high school. He was an apprentice to a sign painter. And they went around the country. um, He was from North Carolina painting Coca-Cola signs on buildings. He became addicted, so to speak, to the Coca-Cola style. And he ultimately created works of art that were paintings that used those old buildings with the Coca-Cola sign on them and his paintings he's he died about 2 years ago uh-huh. but a a local a local uh, just fan not an artist not an art collector in the in the town where he lived bought 50 of his original paintings and those 50 paintings were valued at over a million dollars wow so he bought them. You know, and and he started out, again, a Coca-Cola side painter who came so in love with his subject that he c- created these masterpieces with Coca-Cola logos on the sides of buildings. Uh, and, and, I- and there is a gallery. There's a gallery. The town is, is Denmark, mm-hmm. and there's a gallery there of his work. And anybody who's into art and Coca-Cola, good place to go see it. It it just amazes me that that how
1: back then that that the people that that it was a, it was an iconic symbol even then, but they loved it so much that they just embraced it fully, um, and when Coca Cola, right now, it seems to me like they're they're going on a nostalgia kick, and I don't know if it's Coke themselves or if they're just selling the licensing for that. But I have some things in the house right now. I have uh, I collect radios, and I have one that has a red beacon on top of it, and it has Coca-Cola across the top. And whenever you turn it on, the red beacon lights up. And just just oh, being able, to, yeah, I'll you know what I'll take a picture of it later, and I'll I'll, let you, I'll send it to you so you can see it. But it, it, it's a really cool I radio, like it. and it's one of those things where you you think about this, and it's become a part of our lives. And I don't know if we'll ever see that happen to any other type of product, other than say Coke or even Pepsi, even though we're not talking about them. But but something that we deal with in a day-to-day basis, will it ever have the same uh, appeal that, that that Coke did whenever it started?
0: I I doubt it. I, I think I think our our memories of that time, it was a it was a slower time. It was a time to enjoy. That was you know, today you've got so many diversions yep. in your life that you enjoy, where in those times you didn't have those many diversions of enjoyment. So when you had one like Coca-Cola, you treasured that. And that you, you there were memories that were created because that was part of your life. Today, good grief. I mean, we've got so much social media. We've right. got so many things that we do on a daily basis that no one thing, I think this is my philosophy, but I don't think there's a single thing that will ever capture the hearts of consumers the way Coca-Cola did, because we don't have time for it. We're too busy. We're too busy to get emotional about a product.
1: And I, and I got to do you something for us. Yeah, I know? I agree with you on and that because I don't think you'll ever see that go into it that that we've embraced a product so much, and that the funny thing about it is everybody has stories.
0: Right, right. Everybody remembers if they had a a bottling operation in their town, as a kid you went down there and you looked through the window and watched the bottles go around. And maybe your school trip went through there, and, and boy, you got a free Coke. You know, I mean, everybody's got those memories. You know, they're special.
1: My father-in-law, who is 93 years old, had uh, three pharmacies in town and he actually, when he started before he became a pharmacist, he worked as a worked at a soda fountain. And he will tell you stories about mixing Coke and how the the stuff came in in the bottles and how he had to load it and unload it and everything else. That's where the bottle of syrup that I can't have sitting on the floor right here came from, <laughs> um, because it was an old bottle that he that he forgot he had. He put it away. I found it and said, you know what? I need this, so I t- I took it. But you have these things, and it's a simpler time that we can remember and go back to. Now, me not being that old, I only go back to the mid-60s. It's still a simpler time for me, as I said earlier, about going into the gas station, putting my change into the machine, opening the door up, and pulling the bottle of Coke out. I mean, that was a big thing back then. And you didn't have that many of brands of beverages to drink because it was either Coke or it was something else. You didn't have the right. diets. You didn't have the flavors. I mean, you did have knee-high and stuff like that, but still it wasn't Coca-Cola.
0: That's right. Well, and it's just the, the memories of that. Uh, I can recall when I was in high school, there was a soda fountain, the soda shop. We used to hang out at, you know, jukebox the whole thing right. after school. And if the little old lady who ran the soda fountain, if she was in a good mood, you could get maybe a vanilla Coke. Okay. You know, she'd, she'd put a little shot of vanilla in there along with the Coke <laughs> syrup, you know. Boy, that was special. That was a good vanilla Coke, you know. Um, so those are good memories. You think back about that and you say, yeah, I remember. I, I had vanilla Coke before Coke ever thought about right. having it, you know. Yeah. Uh,
1: so you're coming out with a second book. What is the second book going to be about?
0: Well, it's going to be more of the same, and I guess what we're going to have to call it is back on the trail, more people in places, okay. you know, because what's happened, I've had people contact me who have said, do you know about, you know, and the leads. I had one gentleman from California, bless his heart, he sent me an email, he said, I am planning my summer vacation around your book. Oh. Now, there's a Coca-Cola fan. There I you guarantee. go. Yeah. But but I'm enjoying this because I am meeting some of the, the, the greatest people in the world. These Coca-Cola bottlers, these families, and Coca-Cola collectors and fans—they they just th- that's their thing, you know. And and what a great thing to have as compared to fighting over politics You're or right. you know all the other commotion we deal with all day. What a nice break to have a Coke, you know, and to have it as part of your life, I guess. That's right. Um, the, the The book, i get a plug in here. The book is uh, available on Amazon and also a uh, website, which is simply the Coca-Cola trail.com. And depending on what old country store you walk into or, or what museum you just, May find it for sale there too. Mm-hmm. It, it's selling pretty well. Yeah,
1: I have the links of the book on my website, so whenever you're listening to this or watching it, you can actually click on it and go directly to Amazon to pick up your copy of the book. So, um, so Larry, I really enjoyed this and. We're almost at that hour mark, which is hard for me to believe that we've been talking about Coca-Cola for um, almost an hour now, which I probably could go on for another hour. <laughs> so
0: we may have to do yep, this again okay.
1: in the near future.
0: Well, we get the sequel, done, I'm going to have a lot more stories to tell you. you know, in fact, we only, we only touched on a few of them here. Uh, you got time for a quick one? Sure. I got, I got uh, about eight
1: minutes. Go ahead.
0: Okay, all right, I'm going to, you know, we know that Coca-Cola corporate is Atlanta. Right. Well, I'm going to tell you about another Coca-Cola-related corporation that's now in Atlanta. Back many, many decades ago, there was a, a, a crop dusting company in Monroe, Louisiana, that called themselves Delta Air Service, and they were crop dusters. Okay, and they they wanted to expand. Well, one of the, the Joe Beedenhard son started giving them money, and they started giving him stock to expand, so they would buy more crop testing planes. Well, then they wanted to get into hauling passengers, so they they got more money from from Bernie Beedenhard, and he got more stock, and uh, they started flying passenger planes from Dallas to Shreveport to Monroe to Jackson, Mississippi. And they kept getting bigger and bigger and pretty soon they went from Delta Crop Dusting to Delta Airlines. Okay? But they were located in Monroe, Louisiana. Now here's <laughs> here's what what has become a funny story that the old comedian Jerry Clower used to tell. Okay. At one point you have all these Delta Airlines stockholders are meeting in Monroe, Louisiana, of all places at the conference room at the local bank and one of the uh, one of the uh, shareholders who was from one of the big cities stood up and said, "You know this is getting to be a pretty substantial airline, and we need to be meeting someplace else. My name is joe smith and and I've got you know twenty share twenty thousand shares of coca-cola and i think we should meet chicago next year next year well bernie Biedenharn, who had put all this coca-cola money into delta said my name is bernie Biedenharn, and i've got nine hundred and fifty thousand shares of delta airlines and we'll see you next year in monroe <laughs> so, so, for many years for many years delta corporation delta airlines their corporate headquarters was in Monroe. Of course, now we all know that Delta, like Coca-Cola, is in Atlanta. Right. But it's interesting that there are two two stories, both from Monroe, Louisiana, that, that took both of those companies to some identification yeah. in Atlanta.
1: I'll be darned. And
0: I, I think it's I think it's a neat a neat story.
1: So I wonder if Coke was the official beverage on the Delta Airlines when they were flying passengers then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet it. Is. It sure should have been. If it wasn't, I'm sure it was. And uh, it's and it's just again, those are the kind of things. Some of them I've put in the book, you know. Yeah. And there'll be more in the next book. The little stories you find that that really tell you who the Coca-Cola bottlers were and who they are today. They're involved in their communities, and yeah, they're they're making a good living and selling a product that. But, boy, they're your neighbors, too. Right. They're good people. Right.
1: Well, Larry, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for uh, taking time and talking to us tonight. The one thing the audience doesn't know is Larry's not in his house right now. He's actually sitting outside
0: on his porch. <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at a still a full moon, which is reflecting on my pretty little bayou.
1: There you so, go. Uh, for,
0: for those of you who are still shoveling snow, hey, I've been there and done that. And that's why I'm on the bayou
1: tonight. I understand. I understand totally. Larry, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And when the second book comes out, we'll we'll, we'll talk to you then about that one. You betcha. We'll look forward to it. Thank you, Bill. You take care. Thank you. You have a great night. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Okay. Bye.
1: Larry Jorgensen, The Coca-Cola Trail. And it is, let me hold it that way so you can see it. Uh, The History of Coca-Cola, People, and Places. Really nice conversation with uh, Larry and I hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to get a copy of the book... You can all you have to do is go to my website online with Bill Alexander. It's a highlighted link underneath the video clip and it will take you right to Amazon. Um, it's a it's a great read. We jumped around tonight because I wanted to touch on as much as I possibly can and uh, again, it 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 is it is fun to read and you guys will enjoy that. So um, I'm glad I'm glad we were able to talk to Larry this evening and I love Coca-Cola, my beverage of choice. Um, and it goes really well with bourbon too. But anyhow, <laughs> and that's Jim Bean. But that's for another time and another. Maybe we'll have somebody from the Jim Bean Distilleries on. We'll then we'll have Larry on after that, and we'll do our our tribute to bourbon and Coke. How's that sound? Anyway, anyhow, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Online with Bill Alexander. We're taking a week off next week, and we'll be back the following week. Uh, with a another program. I think we're doing a special Friday night show a little late night because the guests couldn't get in here earlier. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted on that and let you know. Don't forget to check out America's Classic Standards on WMCK.FM and also overnights on Fayette TV Channel 77. And uh, that's it for this week. I'm glad you are able to join us and I uh, hope to talk to you next time. Here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander.
0: Well, I'm tired and I gotta go home. I'm tired and I gotta go home.